and Pogba leaves for McTominay! Magnificent! It's Moraes, he's done it again! He has fizzed that into the bottom corner. Vardy for Chowdhury. And set for Madison! Alisson saw Salah running from his own half, so onside here, Mo Salah. Salah to settle it! In front of the cop! There's no feeling like that feeling! And now you've got to believe them. You have got to believe them. Welcome back to the 3 podcast. Another action-packed weekend of Premier League action has just been and gone. I'm again joined by Peter and Angus, so without any further ado, let's just get straight back into it, starting at Turf Moor. On Saturday, obviously, we would have had a game on Friday night, but the Newcastle game got called off. So we're starting with Burnley-Everton. Uh, one all draw in this one. I thought Burnley were pretty unlucky not to win the game, actually. Although you could argue Everton definitely had the better chances. But Burnley at home, we know now, are going to be difficult to contend with. And they went ahead in this game and they just couldn't hold on to it, really. And it's a shame because I thought they looked pretty good. But again, for Everton, just flattering to deceive. I think that good start's really masked the problems with this team. And Ancelotti's got a lot of work to do, in my opinion. Yeah, this game basically went exactly as I thought it would. Burnley really making it difficult for Everton to play the kind of free-flowing football that they like to play and have played early on this season and limited them to only one goal. You thought when Everton equalised right at the end of the first half that they might come out for the second and, and go all out and get the win. But Burnley did the same job again, kept it really contained, made it really tight. It was a really good home performance from Burnley, really. They did exactly what they needed to do to get the point in a game where, realistically, they were really going to struggle to get a win. Um, so a point was yeah, definitely a good one for them. Yeah, it wasn't the most exciting of early games to kick off the weekend. But I think it was, like Peter said, the kind of predictable result. Everton have really fallen out of the stride they had early on in the season. The biggest thing they're struggling to get is how much was Rodriguez back into the game at the moment. He's seemingly a passenger more than he is anything else. He's not managed to get that influence he was at the start and it's definitely costing them. I mean, the other thing is Carlson's not seemed to have found his form since he's come back from the suspension. Yeah, they're just not where they were. Yeah, Hamas Rodriguez has really struggled for form since the first four games of the season. I thought he looked, you know, unreal, just tearing teams apart, playing key passes. But ever since he got that injury, I think he picked up week five of the Premier League and then he just hasn't come back the same. Uh, I noticed it in the Southampton game, didn't look fully fit. And in this game, exactly the same. I thought he just struggled with his passing. A lot of people actually have said that he might be struggling with the weather in the UK. Obviously, he's used to playing in the Liga and he's never really played in a climate where it's going to be cold for the majority of the year. I don't know if that's affecting it. It could be a bit pathetic if that's the case. But um, yeah, Everton struggled again and they had to rely on another Calvert-Lewin goal, his 11th goal of the season. Without him, you've got to wonder where the goal's going to come from in this side at the moment because he's been banging form and no one else really looks like scoring the goals. Yeah, the weather thing, as crazy as it sounds, could be really accurate. He's not, he won't be the first player who's come from South America who's started off well in the summer months and then really dropped off. I think one of the most obvious cases is Angel Di Maria. He moved in performed initially really well for Manchester United and then the second he got colder he really dropped off and as crazy as it sounds like I know personally at the moment I hate being outside so I can't imagine being South American and having to stand on the pitch freezing your absolute knackers off. It's another thing to note from this game it was Sean Dyke's 200th game in charge of Burnley so I think it was a really important game not to lose for him and I think actually you look back on his time in charge of Burnley and generally this is the kind of performance that they've been almost renowned for fighting above their weight and taking teams that probably should be winning. 
uh, and giving them a really hard game. And it's credit to him that they're such a difficult team to play. Next up, we had City versus Fulham. The second week in a row now, they've just looked comfortable and convincing at home. And yeah, Fulham never really looked in the game at all, I thought. Um, yes, the scoreline doesn't suggest a really one-sided game, but it really was. And the possession stats and the shots on target suggest that. And I mean, it could have been a lot worse for Fulham. So credit to them for sticking in there. But yeah, this is a very easy win for City. Yeah, it was an easy win. Um, but I'll be honest, when Sterling scored after five minutes, I thought we were in for another Man City classic demolition. Um, and it didn't really turn out that way. And I think Fulham definitely deserve a lot of credit for stopping that. We, you know, we've just given Burnley praise for the way they handled Everton and, and the style of play that they used to contain them. But, you know, you, you can't forget that last weekend, Man City absolutely demolished Burnley. So it kind of makes that result even more impressive from a Man City point of view and makes the result that Fulham got this weekend not seem that bad for them. A 2-0 away at the Etihad is not a terrible result if you're a Fulham fan looking to take some positives away. I do think if City had needed to, they would have found another gear and they would have got those goals if they needed more goals. But they probably went into halftime thinking 2-0, we're comfortable. There's not much of a threat from Fulham. We've got another Champions League game coming up and then Man United next weekend. Let's not go crazy and risk getting injured or risk tiring ourselves out. So maybe there was some method in that, in the in the way they played in that second half. Yeah, that's my exact thoughts, Peter. I thought City really took their foot off the pedal and they just they just kind of bossed the game without having to really put any effort in. They were passing steadily from side to side. The Fulham, at the same time, they were very rigid in the defence, especially after going 2-0 down. But at the same time, I don't feel like they pressured the ball that much either. Like they didn't really put City under any challenge to try and recapture the res- the game, try and get the result going more their way. And any at no point during the game did I ever think that Fulham were going to get a goal. The lack of fight, the lack of wanting to get back into the game, I thought was not really acceptable. Yeah, I've got to disagree, actually. I thought Fulham in this match, yes, they weren't at their best, but by no means was it the worst performance they've had this season. I thought against the Man City side, it's always going to be difficult. And they set their team up to defend, and that's ultimately what they ended up doing, even at 2-0. Yes, it's quite a negative way to play, but for Fulham, who may well be relying on goal difference at the end of the season, to only lose 2-0 at Man City when other teams like Burnley have lost by five the week before, I thought it was quite not clever management, but situational awareness, I guess, from Scott Parker. I thought... Yes, you could go and try and get a goal back. But at the same time, if you do that against Man City, you're probably going to lose, like Burnley did, 5 or 6 nil. So whilst it wasn't the most ambitious performance from Fulham, I thought game management and awareness of the situation they're in was was fairly smart. Right, so moving on to the next game, uh, West Ham hosting Man United. Um, first game in the Premier League this season with fans in attendance, which was very nice to see, um, especially for me as it was my fellow West Ham fans in the crowd to watch what unfortunately turned out not to be another uh, victory for us. A real similar situation, I thought, to the Man United game the previous weekend against your your guys' team, Southampton. West Ham looked fantastic in the first half, really should have been 3-0 up, I thought, easily. Second half, just completely different. Sort of threw the game away. Fair play to United, did very well to get the three goals that they got. Lucky with the first one, in my opinion. Ball had clearly gone out of play down the sideline before coming back in for the equaliser, but we had our fair share of luck. Uh, last week against Aston Villa. So I feel like, as I said last week, those things balanced themselves out over the season and that was probably the karma that we deserved after getting pretty lucky in that game. All in all, a good win for Solskjaer keeps United up at the top part of the table and I, I'm still fairly content with where West Ham are, so I'm, I can't be too sad, really. 
yeah, again, it was like a repeat performance for Manchester United at the moment, who must just be copying and pasting their performances week in, week out. Yeah, likewise, last weekend, Southampton, um, we put up a good fight too, 2-0 up in the first half, still threw it away to lose 3-2. And then this time, West Ham go 1-0 up and they dominate the first half, really. At half-time, Manchester United make those subs. They can bring on players like Fernandes and Rashford and completely change the game. And it's exactly what they did. Yes, the first goal was fortuitous. I don't think, you know, obviously the technology is not there to correct decisions like that. I'm not sure why, because it seems like something VAR could probably intervene and show and, you know, disallow the goal for. But ultimately, that's not what happens. And maybe that needs to be looked into. But after that, I thought United were the dominant team and, and they deserved the following two goals, which they got. So all in all, I guess it's like a, a game of two halves and United slightly edged the half that they won. So, I mean, it wasn't massively impressive, just a, a good solid win for them. Agreed and that West Ham were definitely the stronger team in the first half. Really good performance by you guys. I find it very interesting that Ollie's chose not to start, especially Fernandez. I can understand resting Rashford. One, the style of football he plays is very tiring on his body. And we've seen throughout the season already that Sometimes he can be a bit slow picking himself up from when he gets knocks. He seems like he's been carrying injuries throughout. But Fernandez at the moment to me is a linchpin in that he's a key player for United. Without him, they just don't seem to tick. And I think that was a massive case of that in this match. Pogba to me, yes, he got the goal this this week, but overall performance throughout the match isn't up to the level I'd want to expect from him. Whereas Fernandez really is the player they rely on. They need him to just to break teams down. He's so key to them in that front. Yeah, interestingly, talking of Paul Pogba, some really interesting comments coming out from his agent, basically saying that his time at Man United's over, he's not happy there and he'll be leaving as soon as possible, really. Whether or not that is the case, I find it absolutely bizarre that his agent is coming out and making those comments right in the middle of a really important period for Man United, right before their... Champions League game against Leipzig and with the Manchester derby on the horizon at the weekend. If you're, if you're Solskjaer, surely you're absolutely fuming about how that's been allowed to go down. The, the other question that I have on that as well, for you guys to kind of get your insight on as well, is do you think Solskjaer is at all to blame for sort of allowing that situation to become so public without sort of, you know, he's not asserted any sort of leadership in terms of basically telling Pogba to tell his agent to stop talking or telling the agent that he can't be making comments publicly. Is there any blame there or is that just maybe piling a bit too much blame onto Solskjaer in the other way? To me, this is a situation which should have been resolved in the summer. I think this has been coming for quite a while. Pogba was poor last season. When United were up at the best, Pogba wasn't the reason. I think this summer, which has just passed, was the time to offload him. All it's done is the situation has just festered and got worse and worse as the season has gone on. It looks like Ollie's trying to reintroduce him. And this is such, like you said, this is dreadful timing. And at this point, I would drop Pogba to the reserves until January and try and push him out. United can afford to make that type of decision because I don't think he's any benefit to the club having that type of bad name and bad reputation throughout your squad. Yeah, it's interesting because Paul Pogba's obviously been that key guy for Manchester United for quite a few, for quite a few years now. And he's been integral in how they play. Yes, this season he's been phased out of the team a little bit, but I think he had an injury at the start of the season. And, you know, he's coming back into the team now, and I thought he played pretty well against West Ham, actually. But, again, you can't really judge him off one performance because it was a performance that made him look good. Obviously, he got a goal. Um, and then after this game, obviously, his, his agent comes out and says that, and it's confusing as a United fan and as a football fan because you'd think, you know, he scored a goal, he looked fairly happy on the pitch, and then his agent comes out and says he doesn't want to be there. So I don't know how much you can blame Solskjaer for it because... 
yes, he's the manager, but, you know, managing Manchester United is difficult enough without the personalities that they have in the squad. And I think Paul Pogba is just a massive personality, a guy who always wants his own way. If he's not getting what he wants, he'll, he'll outwardly say it. And unfortunately, we've seen that happen this week. And I don't see Pogba being there for too much longer, admittedly, but I do think he'll be in the squad for you know, the next month or so, because he's an important player for them, as we've seen. And without him in that midfield, you know, it's looking pretty weak. Uh, A question I have to both of you is, if you are a Man United and you have this agent who is clearly throwing his player about, trying to get the transfer, would you, in the future, try and, like, avoid his players? Because he's quite renowned as an agent for this type of, like, I guess it's saying shit-stirring. It's a really tricky one, because you would love to say oh, we just won't deal with you anymore because you're causing problems for our club. But at the end of the day, he's the most powerful agent in the world. He he represents the majority of the world's best players. The, the players on his on his books are just incredible, the names that are there. So to make that kind of blanket statement and say, we're not going to work with you anymore, basically excludes you from the market for a number of the world's best players. And then if you then go back on that and go, actually, we will deal with you because we really want that player, you're basically giving that agent um, the perfect ammunition to absolutely screw you in the negotiations because you're already going into it on the back foot. So I think it fundamentally comes down to the the issues that we have in the current game where agents just have way too much power and, and get way too much money for their dealings in these. And, and we've seen agents ruin players' careers in the past by giving them bad advice. And I think as much as this guy has made a huge amount of money for his clients and, and made a huge amount of money for himself, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with him myself. And I think he, he's he is the perfect example of everything that's wrong with modern football. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't think he's the best character to be or to have around. Um, unfortunately, he does have a good client base. And some of the players that he does have under his name include the names of Erling Haaland. Uh, Delit, you know, these young players who probably in the future, say five, six years, are going to be the hottest property in world football. So if you cut ties with them now, yes, you're going to lose Paul Pogba, but you're missing out on on these talented players in four or five years' time. And I don't think it's something Man United can afford to do if they want to be back at the top of the English game, which they probably feel like they belong. So I just don't really see how it would be beneficial to them to cut ties with Raiola right now. Okay, moving on to Stamford Bridge. Uh, Saturday night, we had Chelsea versus Leeds, a 3-1 win for Chelsea. And to be honest, it was fairly comfortable, actually. I thought Leeds would give a better showing of themselves than they did. I thought they took the lead and kind of, you know, sat back and and kind of relied on their style of play to bail them out a couple of times. But it just didn't happen in this one. And I think we're starting to see the quality of this Chelsea side and the depth they have defensively. They look pretty solid. And the attacking talent they have, even with Giroud, who's come into the team recently, looking like one of their better players. Could have easily had a couple of goals or a brace in this game, and he was weirdly denied one by Werner. But all in all, I think you've got to credit Chelsea and, and how good they've been lately. Yeah, my sort of biggest takeaway from this game, apart from how good Chelsea were again, and their sort of resolve to get through the game and, and get the goals when they needed to, I was looking after the game at the sort of the list of uh, Leeds results over the last few games. And they're becoming, in my opinion, the hardest team to predict their results, especially when I was trying to make my predictions, which we'll come on to later. I'm finding it so hard to know which way those games are going to go. They have great defensive performances against Everton and Arsenal, where they kept clean sheets. But then looking before that, they conceded four against Palace and four against Leicester. And then before that, they'd beaten Aston Villa 3-0. You know, there's... The results that they're getting just don't make sense. And if anything, this was one of the, the results that made a bit more sense. 
Um, I didn't see Leeds necessarily getting the win from it. I did think Chelsea would come through and, and get the victory. But yeah, you, you just sort of, you almost wonder now, where is this Leeds side going? Because it's a Leeds side that have always seemed to have a really good system and a really good way of playing. But clearly some of the teams that they're playing have, have found them out and some of them haven't. Chelsea are really now starting to find their, their, their stride. They're, they're coming on each week. They're looking stronger and stronger, I'd say. This is, I think, a very significant win in their season because as we've seen throughout the league so far that Leeds can be a difficult team to play against and apart from the early goal for Bamford I felt that Chelsea were on the whole pretty comfortable Leeds although they had quite a lot of possession struggled to break them down and on the other front when Chelsea were breaking forwards they were they looked really terrific at times and like you said Oliver Giroud he's been significant coming back into their side I I personally think he's the more rounded player at this point than Tammy Abraham and should be the player leading the line. Yeah, I can't disagree. I mean, 34 years old and he's still probably one of the more effective strikers in the Premier League. So it's difficult to argue against Frank Lampard giving him starts at this point. But I'd just like to shout out again to Patrick Bamford, who got a lot of stick from you two last week. I thought he took his goal really well and he's now got seven goals away from home this season on top of a couple at home. So, you know, he's more than just that striker they have up top I think he, he gives them a lot and maybe some of the criticism he gets is a bit unfair but yeah I mean all in all you'd expect a better performance from Leeds but yeah Chelsea are just too powerful at the moment. Yeah you are absolutely right the, the goal that Bamford scored was excellent play by him exactly the kind of goal that you want him to be scoring um, and exactly the kind of chance he needs to be finishing if he's going to be their striker in the Premier League. I think, unfortunately, the, the issue has been the, the past few weeks that he's not been scoring those chances, he's not been in the right place at the right time, and he has missed a few where you thought he should score. Arguably, I saw him running through onto this one, and I thought it was unlikely he would, and I was really impressed that he managed to, to get it around and get the ball inside the post and, and finish off what was a really nice move. So if he can carry on playing like that, then there's no reason he can't be that, that sort of leading line for Leeds going forward for the rest of the season. I've got a question for you guys. Obviously, Chelsea spent a lot of money on Havertz. And to me, he's still that weak link in that Chelsea side. Where do you think he's going to come good for the Chelsea side? Or do you think he will? Uh, yes, good question. We haven't seen too much of him so far this season. Yes, he started a couple of games, but he's not really produced anything. I think he's got a couple of goals um, in really convincing wins, but nothing impressive. And I haven't seen him you know, reproduce that form that he shows so often at Bayern Leverkusen. So it makes you wonder where that form's gone and whether he can recapture it. We've seen with players in the past when they've transferred to the Premier League that they found it difficult to adjust to the pace, adjust to the physical nature of the Premier League. And maybe that's just what he's going through at the moment. Yes, he's had COVID as well. So all in all, I don't think it's been the easiest transition for him. But I think we've seen his quality the last couple of years, both for Germany and in, in the Bundesliga. So I think it's a matter of time before he starts to come good. But at the moment, I think the system that he's playing in probably isn't suiting him too well. I think he's used to playing in a more attacking position. But but yeah, if I was a Chelsea fan, I wouldn't worry about Havertz too much. I think he will hit form at some point. I almost think with, with Chelsea's squad at the moment, that's the problem that they've got. Is We've we've talked about how many players they've got in those positions. Obviously, the, these players, they will play different positions across the front line. But you know, you've got Giroud, Tammy Abraham, Havertz, Pulisic, Ziyech and, and Hudson-Odoi as well. And there's probably someone else who I've forgotten about as well. That's a huge number of players who all arguably think that they should be starting and all arguably would start for quite a lot of teams in the Premier League. So it's a problem that Lampard sort of is of his own creation, um, but it's a problem he's got to manage and, and deal with now. Havertz, I think, is one of the unfortunate victims of that issue, that he's not had the playing time 
um, to be able to establish his sort of position as that leading player. I do, I do agree with you, Matt. I think after, once he's had a bit more time to get settled in and maybe gets a couple of goals and a couple of assists and becomes a bit more of a key player, makes that position his own, then I can see him becoming a really key player for them. But until he gets that opportunity, it's always going to be difficult to stamp your mark on a team when you're only playing a bit part. Okay, and then moving on to the next game, which honestly I did not see coming. I don't think anybody saw coming. Uh, Crystal Palace scoring five goals away from home against West Brom and winning 5-1 ridiculous scoreline helped out massively by a red card for West Brom before the second half had even begun uh, which is always going to be really difficult you get a red card at that moment and you've then got to go into the dressing room knowing that the other team have got 15 minutes to plan how to capitalize on that issue that you've created for yourselves but fair play to Palace they really did capitalize on it they absolutely tore West Brom apart in the second half and knowing Slavin Bilic, as well as I sort of know his tactics and how much he cares about making the defence solid, it, he will have been absolutely fuming about that display in the second half. Yeah, even when you go down to 10 men, the performance West Brom put out that second half was disgraceful at times. The, the gaps at the back were shocking. It was so easy for Palace to get wide and just put the ball in. They never really challenged the ball, West Brom, when it came in. It was Benteke got a few easy goals. But at the same time, congratulations to Palace because throughout the season, they've looked dreadful to watch. And Benteke scored. Christ, they must be playing well. Yeah, it's reminiscent of, I hate to say it, a uh, Southampton game that happened last year. You know, we went 1-0 down or we lost a man pretty early on and then continued to play the same way with nine, with 10 men. And it just didn't work because there are holes all over the place. And that's kind of what happened to West Brom here. Uh, they didn't make a tactical switch when Pereira got sent off and although he plays in an attacking position I thought it just left so many gaps all over the pitch and when you have a player of Sahar's quality uh, in your side you're always going to be able to exploit those gaps and that's exactly what he did and again we saw just how important he is to Palace uh, two goals I think he got an assist for Benteke as well and you know without him they are a completely different team but yeah I don't think anyone saw this result coming and the fact that West Brom folded quite as badly as they did after losing a man says a lot about them as a team and like Peter said maybe a lot about Slavin Bilic as a manager so probably the most surprising result of the weekend. Yeah just going back to that red card just while we've been talking it just reminded me actually this is actually the second time that we've seen this happen to West Brom this season haven't we they they did it again early on in their game against Everton where Kieran Gibbs got sent off just before half time and Everton ended up coming away 5-2 winners in that game. So Bilic clearly hasn't worked out how to play with 10 men because both games that they've had a man sent off this season, they've conceded five. And given both of those sort of red cards were definitely avoidable, he's he's surely going to be saying to his players, please don't put me in that position again and get yourself sent off because that's going to be a problem for them going forward. Yeah, the weird thing is that Slavin Bilic strikes me as a very disciplinarian type of manager as well. I bet he absolutely goes mad at the players when they make a mistake. So the fact that they've had a couple of red cards already this season and nothing's really changed is surprising. You know, these, these players obviously aren't listening or they just feel to take Madison's throwing hands. And, you know, the red card in this game was ridiculous. I thought the kick out was pretty minor, but when you're going to do it, you're going to get sent off. So it was it was done on his point and we saw it with Pepe a couple of weeks ago. You know, if you're going to do it with VAR in the stadium, you're going to get caught out and you're going to get sent off and that's exactly what happens. And yeah, maybe West Brom need to start practising tactics of 10 men because they seem to be playing more often with 10 men than 11 at the moment. Okay, next up we had Sheffield United against Leicester. Uh, Sheffield United desperately needed a win in this one. Yes, Leicester are a good team, but I really thought they could do it and unfortunately for them, it was heartbreak at the very end. Jamie Vardy with a 90th minute winner to 
steal all three points for Leicester. And it was just the same old story for Sheffield United, failing to create any good chances. Yes, they scored one goal, but other than that, they looked pretty useless in front of goal. And how much longer can this go on now? It just makes you wonder because, you know, it's not the first time it's happened that they've been lacking any creativity up front. And Leicester took a while to take advantage, but in the end, they got all three points. And yeah, I mean, they thoroughly deserved it. Yeah, having initially done well to get back into the game and scoring straight after Perez had scored, Sheffield United just, again, have offered no cutting edge. And I mentioned it earlier, and I questioned you two guys, do they need to change up their tactics? And I'm pretty sure you both said that they shouldn't. But at this point, I think they have nothing to lose. Like They've got one point from 11. Stop playing five out of the back. You need to throw players forward. You need to start getting goals because whilst they are strong to break teams down, they're not going to get anywhere because they're too easy at the moment, I think, for everyone. Yes, it took Leicester into the 90th minute to get the win, but I don't personally believe at any point, even when it was 1-1, that Leicester felt like they were under threat of conceding again. They have to change something. You can't you can't keep doing this. It's 11 games in, one point. It's just shocking. Yeah, interestingly, on that tactics point, I felt that the goal that Sheffield United conceded right at the end, it was a classic Jamie Vardy goal. But I just felt they were so naive to allow that to happen. It was a it was a mistake in midfield. It was an unfortunate bobble of the ball, bounced off a player's shin, picked up really well by Madison and fed through to Jamie Vardy. But if you watch it back again and look at how high the defensive line of Sheffield United was at the time that they lost the ball, their defensive line, their back four, is almost on the halfway line at the moment they lose the ball. You are playing against Jamie Vardy, who is known for those kind of those goals where the ball gets fed through and he just uses his pace and his natural finishing ability to get in front of the defender and score. And they just allowed him to do exactly what he loves to do. And he must have been thinking Christmas had come early for him because as soon as that ball was played through, you knew he was going to score and and take away any chance of getting a point for Sheffield. Yeah, and it's strange because for a lot of the game, you know, Sheffield United were able to nullify what Leicester were throwing at them, stopping Jamie Vardy from having those runs. And then right at the very end, when it matters the most, it seems like they all just clocked off and went home. And that's a mentality thing. And I don't know whether that's because Chris Wilder's not doing the correct mentality training or, you know, not getting the players in the right headspace to to know that the threat's going to be there throughout the 90 minutes. Um, I'm not sure. But for me, I think his time's got to be up now. You know, he must be odds on favourite to be the first manager sacked of the season. And, you know, you can't argue with it because how poor have they been this season compared to last? And, Yes, it was, probably wasn't a result that they looked at thinking that they were going to get a win out of it. But at the same time, to come that close to getting a point and then throwing it away in the manner they did was, yeah, pretty, pretty poor. Yeah, and I think it's also a sign of some real issues with the morale in that team as well, because you saw the reactions when they conceded that goal and they're all turning around and shouting at each other and looking for someone to blame. I didn't see anyone on that pitch looking to kind of rally the troops and get a goal back. It looked as though they'd all just realised they'd thrown away another chance at any kind of point and they they just sunk. And I know it's really tough in that moment, surely, to you know recover from that kind of setback. But if you're going to have any chance of surviving relegation, you need a leader in the team or you need a team mentality that allows you to pick yourselves up from those and go, come on, we've got two minutes left or whatever. Let's just go for it and go all out, try and get a goal. I just don't think they've got the ability within that team and the, the, the belief in that team to get results anymore. It's almost like they look like they've lost before they even kick a ball. Yeah, I think something's probably got to be done from the top now. Uh, they've probably tried some different tactics on the pitch and it's not worked. And yeah, one point through 11 games is ridiculously bad. Who would you replace Wilder with? Can you Any quick quick names? Well, there's always one guy knocking about at this time of year and his name begins with S and rhymes with Jam. 
<laughs> and I think he'd be a good candidate to come in at this point. You know, we know his track records. He comes in, he saves clubs from going down. And he's been without a job for a while now. So perhaps it's time for Big Sam. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost like a match made in heaven um, for them, surely. You know, Sam Allardyce comes in, solidifies the defence. They grind out a few nil-nil draws. Nil-nil away at Chelsea is Sam Allardyce's favourite result to get a team back on their feet. When, when you said just then there's a guy who's always knocking around at this time of year ready for the job and his name begins with S, I thought you were talking about Santa for a minute. But good to know that you weren't going quite that mad about your managerial appointments. I don't think it's quite that bad for Sheffield just yet. Well, it would be a perfect appointment, though, that red and white synergy. But, yeah, who knows what happens. But I think a change has got to be made if not before Christmas, then very shortly after, because I can't see anything improving quickly. Another team in turmoil at the moment is Arsenal, and it didn't get any better for them this weekend as they took on Tottenham in front of fans. Yeah, Tottenham just took them apart in that first half. Uh, it was a masterclass again from Mourinho, setting up his team to play on the counter. And the goals they scored in this game were just such high quality. Uh, the first, especially from Son, to run from inside his own half, take on two or three players step inside and curl it beyond Leno from about 30 yards was was crazy and um, yeah the second goal you know there's a bit in there where you know Thomas Partey just takes a casual little walk off the pitch in a very key point um, you know that's just unacceptable I think and Arteta rightfully came out and berated him in the news but yeah for Arsenal it was just so weirdly average in the second half they were better but they just didn't create anything they whipped in I think a total of like 32 crosses into the box in the whole game and they didn't get one good chance out of it. And yeah, where did they go from here? It's interesting that before this game, all three of us predicted a Spurs win and we were all right. It was the, weirdly the most obvious North London derby I've ever watched. I think I knew before watching the game what we were going to get. It was a solid Jose Mourinho side. They were what you'd expect. They were consistently good at the back they were solid throughout and got the goals where it mattered um, Arsenal on the other hand their tactics I found really strange you mentioned the amount of times they whipped the ball into the box but you're looking at their strike force, is that them playing to their their strengths? Surely not their strengths are pacing behind, getting a bum yank beyond someone, especially Eric Dyer one of the slowest defenders around surely you want the ball in behind him and Aubameyang running onto it to get into the get his chances. It just seems all wrong to me. Yeah, it really does seem all wrong. There's very little going right at Arsenal at the moment. Matt, you mentioned briefly the um, Thomas Partey walking off the pitch right just as, as Spurs are breaking for their second goal. I, I watched that and I, I saw it when I was watching it and thought, this is absolutely bizarre. What's he doing? And obviously when he was walking off, at the time that he was leaving the pitch... Arsenal were down the other end and looked like they might actually get a goal. Um, but you know what Spurs are like at the moment. They're going to break really quickly, and that's exactly what they did. He was caught out. Um, he sort of wandered back onto the pitch, looked a bit sheepish, then realised what was happening, turned back around. My my second thought after that was, that really says to me a lot about the kind of authority and, and managerial style that Arteta's got. Can you imagine a player walking off like that under Alex Ferguson or Guardiola or Klopp? Or, or even, you know, um, even Mourinho, Pochettino, anyone, anyone that's like managed at a high level, surely as a player, there's no way you do that because you know what kind of stick you're going to get for it. Party's not an amateur. He's been in the game for long enough to know that that's not something that you do. So what kind of respect do the players have for their manager if that's the kind of thing he's prepared to do midway through a game? And arguably that, that goal was what made it insurmountable for Arsenal to come back in the second half. 
yeah, I thought it was a massive lack of match awareness and tactics awareness. Uh, obviously, before the game, Arteta will have drilled them and said, you know, we're going to be on the back foot for most of the game here. They're going to play on the counter-attack and we're going to be up against it. But we need all of you, especially your two centre midfielders who are imperative in the formation that Arsenal were playing to stay in position, to, to try and marshal that counter-attack. But when, you know, Partey just takes a walk off the pitch, I think he was carrying an injury in all fairness and, you know, he wanted to get off the pitch anyway. But the fact that he couldn't assess the situation, you know, the ball wasn't off the pitch, the ball was live, the ball could have easily ended up back the way it came and that's exactly what happened. And yeah, I think it says a lot about Arteta and his managerial ability in terms of not having the players well drilled enough or to respect the occasion enough. It's a massive game for them, you know. It's the North London derby. It's the biggest game on Arsenal's football calendar and they can't, well, he doesn't want to stay on the pitch to defend. Yeah, it baffled me. Yeah, you'd expect either for him to be so injured that he can't walk off the pitch, therefore he should sit down. But if you are still moving, it's a North London derby. I'm sorry, you play you play into that whistle's blown. You play till the ball's out of play, then you go down. Like You can't just, like you said, I think you used the term sheepishly walk off. That's just, it's appalling. You're in the biggest match of your season. You play through that injury or you go down and make sure everyone know you're down injured and you get that ball kicked out of play. You don't, don't let them play on. That's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it'll probably be unfair not to mention Tottenham and praise them a little bit from this performance because in all fairness they were really really good and I think it's credit to Mourinho and the job he's done there because this isn't a Tottenham side you would have seen pull out this result last season not under Pochettino it wouldn't have been this way they wouldn't have played on the counter-attack and they probably would have conceded one of the goals or one of the chances that Arsenal had and every week I watch Spurs now and I'm, I'm more and more surprised and almost more and more convinced that they're going to be right up there at the end of the season because the players they have you look at Son and Kane again just absolutely lethal together and it will take a lot for someone to stop these two. Yeah, I think a lot of credit has to be given to the Spurs players that they've taken on that Mourinho mindset. They seem to be developing that mindset, which he used to get from teams like his Chelsea side, um, the Inter Milan side who did really well with the Real Madrid side, where they are so well drilled. They know their positions. They know what is expected of them. And they're giving 100% each week. And he's really developing that type of atmosphere in the club. Obviously, there's still players who he doesn't get on with because that is Jose. But for the 11 he gets out on the pitch each week, he has got every one of them are playing for him and are playing the Jose Mourinho way. And that's a winning formula. We've seen it in the past and they're going to be there or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, absolutely kills me to say this, but the, the kind of performances that Tottenham are putting in at the moment really are title-winning performances. They're playing a, a really, really well-drilled system. They're executing it to absolute perfection week in, week out. And they're getting the results against the teams you need to beat in order to win a title. They got seven points from their last three games against City, Chelsea and Arsenal. It's really, really good for them. Um, they get a slight break from the, the horrific fixtures with Crystal Palace at the weekend. And then after that, they've got Liverpool and Leicester. If they come out of those with another seven points, you're going to have to be arguably saying they've got the toughest games out of the way. They've come through a whole half of the season, probably, if not top of the league, probably tied on points for top of the league. They're 100% title contenders and you know it's going to take a lot of stopping them if they carry on playing at the same high level that they're playing at the moment. Yeah, and if anyone's going to stop them, it's probably going to be the team in our next matchup. Liverpool, again, absolutely dominant against Wolves. And I was very surprised, actually. I kind of expected this to be a much tighter game than it was. But, you know, a really bad mistake in the first half from Cody kind of just gave away the initiative. And once Liverpool went 1-0 up, they're such a difficult team to to keep 
under control. And that's exactly what happened in the second half. They just ran riot. And I thought Wijnaldum had probably the best game I've seen him play in the Liverpool shirt. I thought he absolutely ran the show in the middle of the pitch. Um, the goal he took was really, really nice. And all in all, you know, you look at this Liverpool team and they look exactly the same as last season, regardless of how strong their lineup is. It just, yeah, it seems like nothing changes there. So, you know, keeping pace with Tottenham and it could well be these two at the end of the season. Yeah, it's a very impressive performance by Liverpool, especially when you can say that Wolves are often one of the bogey teams for the top teams. They are a really difficult team to play. They play, especially on the counter, incredibly well. Really pacey, really direct players. And Liverpool handled it very well. Um, that back five, only a couple of players you'd expect to be in a starting Liverpool eleven, And even more so, only one of them to be in their back five, you'd expect. And they performed really well throughout. And it's a worrying sign for the other side, I'd say, that Liverpool when weakened to this level, are still putting teams like Wolves to the sword and beating them 4-0. If they can do that to teams like Wolves, you'd expect them to carry this form on throughout the rest of the season, I'd argue. Yeah, and it almost plays into a bit of a mockery against all of Klopp's whinging about injuries because clearly it doesn't matter to them. They've got a big enough squad that they can handle it and handle it more than comfortably. So, you know he he can he can give up with all the whining now because clearly they they're not going to have a problem it was a brilliant performance by liverpool i actually thought one of their best performances um even compared to some of their games last season i thought they'd done exceptionally well this weekend and they made wolves look like a team that were battling relegation really not not a team that we saw playing so well last season and still playing well this season just going back very, very quickly on what you said about Cody, Matt, obviously, yeah, very, very rare error for him. And you could see how gutted he was with, with what he'd done there. It was clearly just um, an absolute moment of madness. But And then fair play to Salah for just being in the right place at the right time. If he doesn't make that run, that error from Cody gets mopped up nice and easily and it's not a goal. So Salah, again, showing why he gets so many goals and is always just in that right place to, to tap the ball in past the goalkeeper. Yeah, it's good as Liverpool were, Wolves were below par and without Jimenez, I expect that to be the case for a couple of, if not months, then the whole season because, you know, he's a difficult man to replace. He's a one-of-a-kind and he's their talisman almost. So if you're going to put Podence up front and expect him to do the same thing, it's not going to happen. Like we said last week, I think Wolves are going to have to look into the transfer market in January. They're going to be forced into it, I think, because the way they played against Liverpool at the weekend wasn't impressive and, yeah, it made the, made it far too easy for Liverpool just to get on top and stay on top. But yeah, like you said, the, the squad management that Liverpool was so co- well, moaning about a couple of weeks ago has now come full circle because look how good they're playing now. And can Klopp really say that they would have played any better with a full-strength team? I'm not so sure he can. And we've seen it not just with Liverpool this weekend, but we saw it with Man City as well. Pep was another one saying that, you know, the, the squad depth that he had wasn't OK and you know, they were really struggling with injuries. Yet he didn't make a single substitution in the match that they played against Fulham this weekend. So... All of this press and news about the fixtures and the schedule needing changing, you know, they're just contradicting themselves every week. And it's weird to witness because they're both such great teams. I don't think you need to moan about the players you have on your pitch because if you play the right way, like we've seen with City and Liverpool, they're going to win the game anyway. Yeah, there's nothing which frustrates me more than listening to Pep and Klopp moan about it. And then I'm not even making the subs to actually justify it. Um, like you said, Pep did nothing. He didn't make any subs. They've still got one of the strongest benches in the league, even with the injuries they have and the matches they're playing. If you're not going to make the subs, I don't think they have any leg to stand on to moan. Both of them have quality players, even with the injuries to bring in. And 
like Liverpool, four 0 up. They can rotate players earlier, but they never did. And moving on to the final game, Southampton against Brighton. Huge result for Saints, two one. Started off Paul. I'm sure both Matt and Peter will agree. Brighton were probably the better team in the first half. Weird penalty which came about. James Ward Prowse just dangling his arm up. I think he was trying to claim handball. The way I interpreted it is that he's actually, he thought that Welbeck had handballed it and that's why his hand was up. Like he seemed to be claiming for something, but well taken penalty. But at the end of the first half, which I think really was a vital goal, was a huge Yannick Vestergaard header. Yet again, a terrific performance by the Big Dane. The amount he's stepped up this season is incredible. Um, he finished last season well, but even better. He's moved on leaps and bounds. And he's really starting to dominate our defence and dominate other teams' de- defences when he comes forward. He's made massive steps. And Ings comes in with wonderfully taken penalty from a very controversial penalty. And I'm pretty sure we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, to be honest, I thought Brighton were the better team throughout this game, actually. I thought we were very lucky to get the result. Uh, and that penalty, like you said, was very controversial and borderline, I'd say. Um, in the first half, I thought Brighton were all over us, got a very deserved penalty. And then we equalised just before half-time. And I think that did change the game, like you say. I think going in at one all makes a big difference mentality-wise. And then you got Danny Ings coming on, which again gives the team just a massive boost for the second half. And whilst I thought we were second best in the second half, um, it was nice to see us prevail in a game that was so tight and the penalty, which I guess we'll talk about now. Um, yeah, I just thought it was a very weird scenario where it was obviously a very borderline decision, but the referee refused to go and have a look at himself. It took ages as well. It took about two or three minutes for the, the referee to decide it was a penalty. And for me, I think in those circumstances, like we've seen used well in the last couple of weeks, the referee's got to go and have a look at himself. But instead, he listens to the, the VAR office decide it's a penalty. and whilst I was happy it was awarded, I was very surprised that it didn't get reviewed properly. And if you're a Brighton fan, you've got to wonder why it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. It's a, it's a good win for us, but I don't think we're anywhere near our best. I, I'll be honest, I think it's one of the worst VAR decisions we've seen, not just this season, but last season as well. I've not seen a single angle or slow-mo or full speed of it that makes it look like a penalty. And as you said, Matt, the fact that they, the ref didn't even go over and have a look at it himself... I just simply can't understand it. it. It it plays into the minds of anyone that's looking to start an argument about match fixing or anything because it was just such a strange one. It was almost like there was, you know, well, we've made the decision, but we're not going to let anyone else have a look at it. We're not going to explain why we've made it. We've just made it. And yeah, I do think Brighton were the better team. But, you know, I said it about West Ham last week. Aston Villa were the better team against West Ham. Came West Ham came through and got the win. You need those wins sometimes in the season. And... I'm sure there will be, and there probably has been already moments where Southampton have been hard done by by some of the decisions and probably does balance itself out. But yeah, just a really, really bizarre one and almost a bit of a shame for the neutral fan um, to sort of see a game end in that way, considering that it, it could have been decided by a moment of real greatness by one of the players on the pitch. It's sort of been decided by an absolutely bizarre officiating moment. I think the penalty... Should have been given as a penalty, but I don't think with the amount of time it took, I don't think it should have been given, if you know what I mean. So, which sounds really backwards. I think it wasn't clear and obvious that it should have been given as a penalty, so therefore it probably shouldn't have been. But with enough reviews as times I've looked at it, I think even though the foul appeared to start outside the box, like the first touch, I don't think he'd done enough at that point to warrant actually it being a foul. Whereas 
once he'd gone into the box, that's where the leg comes across and he takes him down. So in my viewpoint, it was a penalty in the technical terms. However, I do agree with Matt when he says the review took too long. Therefore, to me, that means it's not clear and obvious. And I don't believe if a decision is taken that long, it should be given as a penalty. So even though possibly the right, in my eyes, the right result came across, no penalty should take that long. If you should stick with the on-field decision and if it's going to take that long, the on-field decision was a free kick and it should have been a free kick. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of see where you're coming from. But at the same time, there, was, there wasn't a single camera angle that definitively showed that either of those players was in the box at the time that the foul started or finished. So I don't think you can ever really say that it was definitely should have been a penalty or the right decision was made because there isn't anything that definitively shows it was. And But then that, that I guess, is me also agreeing exactly with what you've just said, that if that's the case, they shouldn't be giving it. We've seen we've seen many incidents like it. I just thought it was a really, really bizarre example of one. I think it's one of those decisions where if it had been given a penalty, on on-field penalty by the ref, I think there wasn't enough evidence to overturn it. So it would have been a free kick. At the same time, I think there wasn't enough evidence on the pitch, really, not not with a quick enough decision for it to be given as a penalty. So as much as deep down I think it was a penalty, I think really it should have been given as a free kick. I'm finding it kind of hard to decrypt what either of you thought about that now. But um, either way, it got given. Southampton win, go up to fifth in the league. And a fun fact for you all, it's the first time that Southampton have won on a Monday night since 2002. So that one's laid to bed now. And um, yeah, hopefully we play on Monday nights more. Okay, moving on to our takeaways from week 11 of the Premier League. Again, we've seen two teams struggle uh, more than anyone else. We saw it in the previous couple of weeks as well. And it's the two teams, again, uh, that always come to mind. And it's Arsenal, who are way below par as to what they'd be expecting this season. And Sheffield United at the bottom, who just continue to lose game after game after game at the moment. And they're two teams who you would think are going to lose patience with their manager at some point. But yeah, I guess who's going to go first? What do you guys think? Yeah, looking at the way they've both performed, you'd think one of them has got to be odds on to be chopped and pretty soon. Wilde, I think, has done enough for the Sheffield United board to probably give him plenty of time. He's done such a great job there. He kept them up and they did really well last season. I think maybe they might give him the January transfer window to try and rectify things. At least maybe half a January transfer window. Arteta, on the other hand, only seems to be going backwards. There doesn't seem to be any progress week in, week out. Like They started off the season okay and they've only gone downhill. And he doesn't seem to be doing anything to rectify that. There's, there's not been any changes in tactics. Not massive changes in personnel. And he's got the type of squad which can to make changes. So I would argue that Arteta will be, especially out of these two, the manager to be sacked. For me, I agree with Angus that Wilder is probably, he did enough in the past for the club to, to deserve a bit more time. Arteta doesn't have that on his side. Um, the only thing I wonder with Arsenal is whether they'll view it as more of like, you know, it's a it's a long-term project with Arteta and they, they're going to give him the benefit of the doubt and allow for a bad start and then see see if he can improve it over time. It's a dangerous game to play, though, because if he's not the man for the job, then they're, they, they're better off getting rid sooner rather than later. But with Wilder, I think it's really going to come down to something that I don't actually know an awful lot about, which is sort of the, the ownership system at Sheffield United. If they've got high-profile investors or, or sort of investors in the boardroom who 
uh, looking at their financial side of things and thinking the last thing we want is to get relegated and, and that's going to impact my, on my investment, then the pressure starts to build on the people with the decision making at their hands to sort of act in the best interest of the investors. I wonder if something like that could happen at Sheffield. I don't know anything about their board setup, unfortunately, to know whether that's likely to be the case. But yeah, unfortunately for Wilder, I do think he's probably going to be the first one to go just because I kind of see Arsenal sticking with Arteta and seeing if if he can turn it around. Yeah, I somewhat agree. I think it's going to be really tight as to which one goes first. I do think they're probably going to be the two that will see the boot first. Unfortunately, for Sheffield United fans, I kind of feel like it's going to be Chris Wilder, though. The start they've had and the fixtures they have coming up, it doesn't really seem like it's going to get better anytime soon. We've talked previously about them changing up their tactics and playing a different way. But again, we don't think they have the personnel to be able to do that right now. And if you leave it until January to buy, to buy players that they, they feel might change the situation, it might be too late by then. Very few teams survive being bottom at Christmas. So... For me, I think if they don't make a change within the next couple of weeks, it's kind of done for me. And just touching on Sheffield United, their owners are actually Saudi king or Saudi investor. So I can't imagine as an investor from Saudi Arabia you're going to be too keen on your team dropping down into the championship. I mean, the value must lose, must be pretty significant. So I think if they're going to be ruthless about it, then they've got to do it soon. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's the first one to go. And then on Arteta, I think we've seen in the past... Arsenal give a lot of time to managers who are underperforming. Emery got a lot longer than he probably deserved. Benga, towards the end of his reign, you know, was definitely over, overstaying his welcome. And unfortunately, I, I do think they might get a bit fed up of having to wait for this project to come full circle because at the moment it doesn't look anything near being completed. And it's going to take two, three years, in my opinion, to get Arsenal anywhere near or back to anywhere near as a level that they want to be. So whichever way it goes... I think the changes need to be made at both clubs. Um, and some of the candidates you have as well that, who are lined up to take over these jobs, you know, you've got some really high-profile managers without a job at the moment, especially high-caliber managers who might be interested in the Arsenal job. You've got Allegri, previously of Juventus. You've got Sarri, previously of Juventus and Chelsea. Um, also there, you've got Pochettino. I mean, he's obviously not going to take the Arsenal job, but again, he's one of those managers you could approach. And yeah, to me, they need someone like that, someone with some experience, someone with some know-how to try and get them out of the funk they're in because at the moment I do think Arteta's leading them only one way and that's down. Right another big difference this weekend is that we saw the return of fans back in Premier League stadiums at least in some stadiums anyway mostly in London and the south coast um, just a great sight to see really to see even a limited amount of fans back allowed into the stadium making noise not having any artificial crowd noise to watch on TV yeah it's just a really good sign I think of things to come. It was a good sign to see some of the fans back in, but some of the fans who were in the stadium, watching through the TV, it was almost embarrassing at times. I don't know how many games you watch with the fans in the crowd, but there was the one which really sticks to mind is the Chelsea game. And there was a lot of whooping throughout, just random whooping, and it made no sense. It weren't, it was like, woo! It was like, listen to Ric Flair. And it was driving me nuts. I sat there going, why is this going on? And it happened again in the Brighton Saints game. The Brighton fans are just whooping for no sense. It was like, there weren't football chants. They weren't like to do with like maybe booing like the Saints players or booing the, the opposition. It was just randomness. It was like, oh, look, we're in a, we're in a stadium. Let's, it was almost like watching an Olympics match. I speak to one of my friends. I was saying it was like when you see the diving at the Olympics. 
and the type of crowd you've got. You've got like the teenagers in there. It generally, I, that was the impression I was getting through the TV. I'm not sure I would want it to be there myself. Yeah, it's a strange one, I guess, because it's a completely different atmosphere to anything anyone will have ever experienced in a football stadium before. My only, I'm, I didn't actually experience any of what you, you just described. It sounds absolutely bizarre. But the only thing I can think of that may possibly explain it is I know technically sort of singing and chanting is, is not allowed at the moment as part of the sort of COVID protocols. But maybe there's for some reason that's why people are sort of making up their own ways of making noise. And especially as you're wearing a face mask, I'd imagine it'd be quite easy to make quite a loud noise and not be detected. But I don't know, really strange. I, I think you'll remember I said I wasn't that sure whether I'd actually want to go to a game at the moment. But then as soon as I saw the footage of the fans in the West Ham Stadium before the game, I just wished I was there. So I think, you know, for, for anyone that loves going to matches, any opportunity to get back into a stadium and, and sort of see the start of things returning back to normal, it would be a great thing to do and, and quite a novel experience as well. So I've probably been converted in my mindset of whether I would want to go or not. Yeah, it's weird. I can't relate to anything that Angus said in terms of the random noises being made throughout the matches. But I guess a lot of that could be down to some of the people who got tickets to these games aren't, you know, your standard going to sing every song, get really into the game kind of fans. They're the kind of fans who are just there to soak in the game, watch the match and, you know, go home. So maybe the atmosphere at these games isn't going to be as great as we're used to with full capacities because the fans aren't maybe the ones who are used to making all the noise. And so you get the old isolated shout, which comes, you know, which is a little louder than you'd probably be used to. But in general, I think it's, a great sign and probably in two three months maybe early next year we'll start to see an increased capacity of fans allowed back into games which I think really will make the difference because at the moment with 2,000 fans it's very difficult to make an intimidating atmosphere as we saw in many of the games at the weekend but yeah I thought Brighton in particular were pretty poor didn't hear much from them um, I did think Tottenham were probably one of the more impressive fans that I heard at the weekend I thought they kept up a relatively decent atmosphere throughout the game um, so it'll be interesting to see whether one set of fans is louder than any others but um, I guess in time we'll find out who has the most loyal and loud fans This week we have a question in from Ian it's Leeds player Bavada was fouled but didn't go down and no penalty was given should have VAR stepped in or should he go down and gone for the penalty himself like is that him not being professional in his the way he should approach the game what do you two guys think yeah for me I thought it was one of those where if he goes down, the penalty gets given. But as we've seen in the past, if you don't go down, if you don't go to ground, very few referees are going to see it as a foul because you haven't lost any position on the pitch to this situation. So like Paveda did, he, he beat the tackle and still had the ball at his feet. Therefore, it's very difficult for the referee to be like, right, that's a foul, when the player probably felt that he was in a good position to score a goal. And I think that was probably what happened in this game. Whilst you would probably like to see Paveda go down as a Leeds fan, he was very honest, stayed on his feet and probably thought that he could get a better advantage by playing on and, and having a shot at goal. Unfortunately for him, it didn't work out and you know Leeds didn't get anything out of it. But I think it would have been wrong of him or he would have felt morally wrong by going down there because he didn't feel enough contact. But as we've seen in the past, like we said last week with Grealish, any slight contact and you're likely to, to get a decision in that situation. So unfortunately for Leeds... Yeah, he probably should have gone down and they probably would have got a penalty. But I think for the spirit of the game, as you've mentioned so much in previous weeks, it was nice to see a player stay on his feet. Yeah, you read my mind there in mentioning Jack Grealish because after the way I spoke about him last week, I think you can understand why he was the first player that jumped to my mind there. He was the honest, he was the honest man in the situation. He stayed on his feet. He did the right thing. 
in terms of playing the game morally and in a sportsmanlike way. But in this day and age with the way football is played, sensibly, was it the right thing for him to do for the team? No, he should have gone down. He should have felt the contact had gone down. You look at, you know, not just Grealish, you look at Mo Salah, Sadio Mane as well. I can think of incidents with both of them in, in the last couple of years where they've they've almost played for the minimal contact and then used that to go down and win the penalty. It's almost like that's become a part of the way you have to play now in order to capitalise on the way that the game works. So, yeah, he should have gone down. Would I like to see him go down? No, I think if he can stay on his feet and score, then that's a better thing to do. That's that's really what football's all about. But um, unfortunately for Leeds, he probably would have been better off actually crumpling to the floor and getting the penalty on that occasion. The other thing I think Ian was trying to get at was, do you believe that VAR should have stepped in, even though he didn't go down? Like, should they have said it was still a foul and it was a penalty? And would that possibly motivate players in the future to stay on their feet when potentially fouled? I think there's two issues there. One is the whole clear and obvious error side of things. It would be very hard to say the referee did make a clear and obvious error because by the very fact that he stayed on his feet, the foul clearly wasn't so bad that it prevented him from continuing with the attacking phase of play. And and then that ties into the other side of things. Even if VAR thought it was an obvious error, was the foul technically bad enough to deserve a penalty if he was able to stay on his feet and carry on playing? The answer, in my mind, is no. It, it's one of those absolutely bizarre situations where if he goes down then we're all saying, yeah, it's a clear penalty. And if he stays on his feet, you go, oh, maybe it wasn't, maybe it shouldn't have been a penalty anyway. I think that sums up why it was the the right thing to do in that situation would be to go down because then you avoid any doubt on the situation. I think that's why VAR weren't able to get involved, even if they'd wanted to. It would be a very difficult one to justify overturning the on-field decision, given the way that the the moments panned out after that. I think it's just a bit immoral, maybe not from a player's point of view, who's probably quite, quite often forced to the ground and so they you know they take advantage of the slightest contact like we've seen in the past but in this situation it would have been wrong of VAR to step in because you know there was no clear and obvious error like Peter just said so if if VAR starts getting involved in in plays that are still live and you know there's no foul and then say the play goes on for another two minutes and they bring it back for something that wasn't even caught by the referee I think it just gives off the wrong impression so I think it was handled probably the right way in this instance. We're all in agreement that end of the day he probably should have gone down. He should have just taken the contact, gone down, and got the team the penalty. Yeah, and you never know if it's something like Bielsa's philosophy not to go down under non-existent contact. It wouldn't surprise me because he seems like a bit of a football purist to me. So maybe he's not encouraging his players to go down when there's a slight touch. Who knows? But either way, yeah, it probably did cost Leeds their chances of getting anything out of that one. All right, so we're going to make some predictions now for the upcoming games this weekend. Um, starting on Friday night this time, we've got Leeds versus West Ham. So West Ham will be coming off that Man United loss, looking to bounce back. Leeds, again, a difficult result for them to take at Chelsea. And two teams who really need a win in this one. West Ham have started the season a lot better than Leeds, but for me, Leeds will get going at some point. And at home, they do look a little bit better than they do away. So this was a really tight one for me to predict, but I've gone with a, a 2-1 Leeds win. Yeah, this is a huge game and I think in both teams season this one it's pivotal in which direction they're going to be moving forwards because it is a game which is so finely balanced like you said Matt um, I've really struggled to think about who's going to win this and I've, I'm actually going to almost sit on the fence I'm going to go with a 
two all draw. Really great game, but neither team quite managing to pit the other. Interesting. So I've I've done something that I never normally allow myself to do here. Um, I predict I had written down two nil to Leeds, and then I've just had a momentary just change of heart, and I've I've gone with three nil to West Ham. I'm not really sure why I've done it, but I have. My logic being the games that I've not expected us to do well in this season, we have done well in. I'm thinking of like the three nil away at Leicester and the four nil at home to Wolves. I'm just wondering whether we pluck out another mental result like that. So yeah. Going with 3-0 to West Ham. So speaking of Wolves, uh, they're up next against Aston Villa in a in a Midlands derby. Um, I've gone with a Wolves 2-0 home win here. Aston Villa, similar to what I was saying about Leeds in our sort of commentary earlier, was I just find them really hard to predict. You never know how they're going to do in a game. Although Aston Villa have had that extra week of rest, I wonder if that will almost sort of set them back because they will be off the pace and sort of their rhythm might have been knocked out of them a bit. Um, so yeah, I think Wolves will come away with the three points on this occasion. Yeah, I found this one pretty pr- difficult to predict as well, actually. Uh, Midlands derby, I think it brings a bit of spice to this one. Obviously, Aston Villa had that extra week to prepare. It'll be difficult for Wolves because they'll have to deal without Jimenez again, and I guess they'll have to deal without him for the remainder of the season, in my opinion. So how they remedy that goal threat that they have through him, I don't know. Will we see Fabio Silva finally come into the starting lineup and start scoring? I'm not sure. So... I've kind of sat on the fence on this one, actually. I've gone with a one-all draw. Like both of you said, this is another tricky one to predict. I think Villa are coming off a long rest. And I can understand both of your viewpoints that that might make them a little bit like ring rust. However, Wolves have taken a spanking 4-0. Their mindset, it must be quite low at the moment. Key talisman striker is out with a worryingly bad injury. The rest of the team, they none of them have really been getting the goals this season. So... I'm going to go with a Villa win, and I'm going to say 3-1 to Villa. Almost comfortable. Moving on from that, the other team which missed out this week, we've got Newcastle against West Brom. I think this could be a relatively comfortable match for Newcastle. West Brom, at times this season, have looked really poor. And Newcastle, on the other hand, against teams who are on the weaker side, have looked fantastic. St. Maximan especially can really break teams down, and I think he will be the key player in this match. So I'm going to go for a 2-0 Newcastle win. Yeah, I'm going to echo those thoughts, really. Uh, West Brom West Brom really didn't look impressive against Crystal Palace, and they had Herrera sent off, one of their better players this season, so he's now going to be suspended for this game. Newcastle had that extra week's rest due to COVID, and I think that could make the difference. I think they'll come in fully charged, rested, and yeah, West Brom haven't travelled well this season, so I think Newcastle are going to get a win as well, and I'm actually going to mirror your result, Angus, and go for 2-0. Thinking about, obviously, the fact that Newcastle have had their training ground shut down until, I think sort of early of of this week, I think that's really going to impact them. I think the fact that they've not been able to train together collectively while West Brom have um, is going to be a big issue for them. And I also think just the the general turmoil of having a game cancelled at short notice. So they've done all their preparing to play against Aston Villa with West Brom as the sort of mindset for the next one. Tactically wise, they're not going to be as ready for it. I can see West Brom capitalising on this sort of really strange situation that Newcastle have found themselves in. I've gone for a 2-1 win to West Brom. That is a shout. be interesting to see if West Brom can turn around that poor form. Another team looking to turn around some poor form, Manchester United, who face Man City in the Manchester derby. Another massive game for Oli and a massive game for Pep, really. I think this is a pretty big game for both sides. I mean, the Manchester derby is always pretty important, but this one just seems to have some extra added incentive to both teams. And, you know, Man City have really looked good recently. They've picked up their form at home. 
And can they translate that on the road at Old Trafford? I think they probably will. United just went out of the Champions League. They'll be a little bit hungover. And I think that's going to be enough for Man City to get a fairly convincing win at Old Trafford. So I'm going to go 3-1 City. Yeah, I think this is a huge game for both teams, really. City need the win to stay in touch with the, the front runners, and United just need the win just to, to keep Solskjaer in a job, I think. So having said that, I'm going for a 1-1 draw. Um, point split between the two teams. I can't see either team really blowing away the other. These games tend to have a bit of a... I don't know. I always feel like there's been there's been some stalemates in these where, where both teams have kind of cancelled each other out. So yeah, I can see this one being fairly even throughout. Yeah, I can understand where you're coming from there, Peter. They quite often can be quite a bit of an anticlimax. However, I think the way United have been so poor in the first half this season, Man City often come out the gates really strong and then kind of drop off as the game goes on. I think this is going to be one, one of those games where the first 45 minutes, they're going to blow United away. They're going to be splitting them open left, right and centre. And I'm going to go for a very, very comfortable 3-0 Man City win. OK, next up, we're at Goodison Park for Everton versus Chelsea. Two teams who started the season really well. I mean, Chelsea have continued that form on, but Everton have really struggled lately. And it's difficult to see them getting a result in this one, from my point of view. Chelsea just look unbeatable at the moment. They're defensively solid with some really good creative players going forward. And Giroud, again, coming into the team and proving to be a real big impact. So I think it's going to be comfortable for Chelsea. I'm going to go 2-0. Yeah, Chelsea are one of the most informed teams in the league at the moment. They are, they're really starting to strike up great partnerships at the back and going forwards. And I can't see how Everton are going to manage to stop that. I'm also going to go for a comfortable Chelsea 2-0 win. Yeah, interestingly, when I was thinking about this one, it, I was reminded suddenly of that game that we had a few years ago. I think Chelsea and Everton, and I think Chelsea won 6-3 back in the good old days when we had some real prime strikers playing for Chelsea. I think Samueletto played up front for them during that game. I was just thinking about that because we've seen some really high-scoring games for both teams. However, I don't really think that's the way this one's going to go. I think Chelsea defensively are now a lot more secure than they were, and I think they will come away with the win. Um, I've gone with a 2-1 win, just to be slightly different from your predictions. (laughs) Um, Moving on to the next game, uh, Southampton are hosting Sheffield United. I've gone with a very, very comfortable 3-0 Southampton win here. It's probably the easiest prediction of the week for me. Can't see anything else. Southampton have been consistently good this season, aside from one or two blips. Sheffield have been consistently atrocious. So yeah, it's going to be fairly comfortable, I think. Yeah, I also think it's going to be really comfortable for us. And with the return of Danny Ings coming into our side, it can only look positive. I'm not going to go with a 3-0. It's not really our style, sadly. So instead, I'm going to go with a 2-0 Saints win. But comfortable, I don't think they're going to really offer much against our defence, especially with Yannick in such good form. Yeah, what worries me is that we might get a little bit complacent, I guess. Uh, Sheffield United bottom of the league and we're obviously in good form and it's quite easy to take your eye off the ball in these games. And we're notoriously bad for doing so, especially at home and especially in front of fans, which will be the first time that's happened in a good eight, nine months now. So I'm optimistic that we'll get the win, but I don't think it'll be convincing as per usual. So I'm just going to go for a narrow 1-0 and hope we scrape it. Okay, next up we have Crystal Palace v Tottenham. A bit of a London derby, but not much of one. Tottenham looked like a runaway train this season. I think they're just going to go from strength to strength and Crystal Palace, I don't see offering much in terms of resilience. So even with Sahar, I, I think Tottenham are going to be far too strong for Palace. So I'm going to go for a 3-1 win. Palace, even though they performed really well in the last game, I don't see where they're going to have the ability to, one, withhold the 
rampant Spurs at the moment and also to really break down Spurs. So I, I'm not going to be as confident. I'm going to go with a 2-0 Spurs win. Definitely a win for them. Yeah, all across the board, I've gone with a 3-0 win to Spurs. Can't see any other result there. Across uh, to another part of London, Fulham are hosting Liverpool in what looks like a fairly daunting fixture for Fulham, considering the form that Liverpool bring into this. But as I've said in the last couple of episodes, I've been more impressed recently with the way Fulham have played in these games, and I don't think they'll get absolutely turned over. They've shown a a much more strength uh, in defence than they they had previously. But obviously Liverpool have got a a strike force that is very, very hard to defend against on a a good day. So I've gone with um, a 3-1 win to Liverpool on this occasion. Yeah, I keep predicting Liverpool to drop points and they never do. So for a change this weekend, I'm not going to go for a Liverpool draw. I'm going to go for a fairly big Liverpool win. Although Fulham were impressive against Man City, they didn't offer much going forwards. And I don't see that being any different here. And if anything, I think Liverpool are slightly better going forwards than City. So I've gone for Liverpool to one-up what City did to them last weekend and go for a 3-0 Liverpool win. And to make it a clean sweep of Liverpool wins, I also can see them just tearing Fulham apart. I'm going to go even one bigger. I'm going to go with a 4-0 win. I think they're just going to have too much for Fulham. And we've seen, like they did this week, when Liverpool get in the goals, they have the ability to really tear teams apart. Next up, we have Leicester against Brighton. I find this a really tricky game to predict. Leicester have really dropped off in form. And on the same time, Brighton, although not managing to get the goals, often look really good in their games. However, I think this is going to be another one where Leicester will flatter to deceive, but will win nonetheless. So 2-1 Leicester. Yeah, I've gone with exactly the same scoreline, 2-1 Leicester. Um, I think they will have too much for Brighton, but definitely don't think it will be an easy walk in the park for them. There's going to be some difficult moments that they'll have to overcome to get to that point. Yeah, to me, I think we've seen the best of Brighton already this season. And from what we have seen is that they are good, but they don't put the ball in the back of the net and they don't get results. And unfortunately... For them, I do feel like they're going to get a little bit worn down by not getting results out of these good performances. And I can see Leicester taking advantage, especially at home after a good win against Sheffield United. I think they'll comfortably win this game 2-0, in my opinion. Right, and finally, to round off the game week, we've got Arsenal versus Burnley. And who would have thought this would have been a relegation battle match at the start of the season? Whoever gets the result in this game can really say that they're pulling away from danger as such. But Arsenal need a win in this one. And for that reason, you would think that they probably have enough in terms of squad quality to get the better of Burnley. But again, very difficult to predict. I'm just going to go for a very, very nervy 1-0 win for Arsenal, but it won't be comfortable. So I've gone along similar lines, but I actually think it will be a slightly more emphatic victory for Arsenal. I think they they need a big win. And if they don't get it, I really worry for them. So on that basis alone, I'm going for a 3-0 win to Arsenal. Uh, And I think it will be, if they do get a win of that nature, it could be something to kickstart a bit of a revival for them. Um, I don't think it means they'll be flying up the league anytime soon, but it might be the sort of the boost that they need to get a bit of confidence and belief back in themselves that they can come through these games and win them. I have to say, I'm amazed that you predicted a 3 0 Arsenal win because at no point this season have I really seen where that's going to come from. But you never know, it happens. You somehow managed to beat Wolves by several goals. So, <laughs> however, I don't see it happening here. I think Burnley are going to have enough to stifle that Arsenal attack. So I think it's going to be a 1 1 draw. Interesting. I mean, obviously, yeah, you can criticise my prediction making, but I think, as you will both have probably noticed, I did get eight out of the nine results correct at the weekend uh, that we've just had, and two correct scores in that. So, you know, maybe uh, might want to give me a bit more respect on my decision making there. No. All right, that brings then to another episode of the 3PL podcast. Thanks again 
to everyone who continues to listen and support the podcast. We'll be back again next week as the fixtures really start to ramp up over this busy Christmas period. Until then, make sure you're following us across all of our social media at 3PL Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And also make sure you're subscribed on our YouTube channel to make sure you never miss an episode. We'll catch you all again next week.